Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the Gospel of John, how do the actions of the Samaritan woman set her apart from the disciples of Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple? Is discipleship only about learning and following, or is more required? Why does fundamentalism make discipleship impossible? The answer to these questions comes with the difficult reminder that biblical knowledge can only be received at the expense of the disciple's ego. Richard and I discuss the parable of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 69 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This weekend we had the blessing of Bishop Paul, who came to visit our parish. And during his sermon today on the Samaritan woman, I was struck by a point that he made, which is the transformation that the Samaritan woman went through from trying to teach Jesus when he came up to her to listening and learning from Jesus by the time that he left. And that was really important to me because one of the problems we have in not our society, in our world today, is fundamentalism. Whatever religion, there's a strong strain of fundamentalism that exists. And it really bothers me because it's an irrational way of approaching things. It's a legalistic way of approaching things, and it's an unloving way of approaching things. Absolutely. So... What happened in the last 30 years that we've got this kind of fundamentalism? I mean, it goes even beyond religion. We have fundamentalism in politics as well. The ideology and the strength that ideology has and the role that ideology plays and then the destruction that ideology wreaks on everybody. So when His Grace mentioned the transformation that the Samaritan woman went through, this was really important to me because fundamentalists are always interested in teaching, but they don't learn. Right. They already know what's correct, so now it's only a matter of convincing others. And they lack completely the ability for self-criticism. Self-criticism does not exist for these people. And self-criticism, unfortunately for them, is the only way to reach any kind of wisdom. Bishop Paul explained, She went from someone who thought she had something to say and who wanted to explain to Jesus her relationship to Jacob's well and her heritage and what she knew. And as Jesus began to teach, she demonstrated her willingness to switch gears and become a disciple and actually sit at his feet, so to speak, and hear his teaching and learn from him. John Chrysostom points out that the hour of the day that this conversation took place meant that it was an interruption to her work. So it's not just that she was willing to humble herself and make this transition to listener instead of speaker, but she did so at a time that was inconvenient to her. She left her pail, 
at a time when there was urgency and schedule and demands of the household. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? So there's an implicit challenge here. Who do you think you are, Jesus? You're not making any sense, Jesus. I've got the bucket. You've got nothing. And you're going to give me water. And this is not just any well. This is the well of our father Jacob. There's an element here of competition between the Samaritans and the Judeans. Oh yeah, our group has rights too. We've got some valuable real estate up here in the north. We've got Jacob's well, so don't forget. Yeah, you've got Jerusalem, but we've got Jacob's well up here. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the immediate response that the woman brings is, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. This is the transformation that his grace mentioned, that she was trying to put Jesus in his place. And once Jesus said, No, I have access to water. I have access to a source. And I like using the word source here because source is a spring, but also source is a place that something else comes from. So the play here. I have a source of water that will give you eternal life. I have the source of eternal life. So the woman says, well, what is it? I want it. Give me more. I'm listening. She turns so quickly from someone who is teaching and someone who is pushing to someone who is ready to learn. That being said, the woman went through a transformation and then learned. And Jesus then was able to talk about her herself. And so we have the famous passage about her husband. I have no husband. Correct. Because the person you're with is no longer your husband. And then all of a sudden he brings insight to her, which cut her down and criticized her, which is interesting because she says, okay, give me this water for eternal life. Okay, let's get down to brass tacks. How about you stop fooling yourself first? How about you stop telling yourself the story about, well, kind of my husband, not really my husband. Let's just call a spade a spade and then we can move on and talk about what needs to happen. And she's amazed. She goes and talks to the people. Here's a guy with a lot of insight, but it's not just insight. It's an insight that brings eternal life. This transformation that she went through is what points out the correct path of the disciple. And this is precisely the counterbalance to the fundamentalism that we see today. Unfortunately, though, we have the disciples who show precisely what the problem is and how the problem continues. Well, the disciples, first of all, While the woman, when she hears the news that Jesus has some water to offer that will quench your thirst in such a way that you'll never be thirsty again, she reacts to that joyously and attentively. At first, she doesn't understand Jesus, but there's no mistaking her willingness to hear what Jesus has to say and her desire to receive what he has to offer. I mean, it's the wellspring of the Torah. It's the wellspring of God's instruction. He's sitting as a teacher next to this well, and he is pouring the grace of this well out for the sake of those who are willing and interested. But the disciples who've been with Jesus and who bear the name disciple, bear the name of student, someone who is being disciplined by their teacher. Despite this, They are hungry, thinking about their stomach, and 
They ask Jesus whether he's hungry. And of course, he's talking about the food and the drink of God's instruction, God's life-giving word, his bread. And they're thinking about something that passes away. And so where do they go? They don't understand that Jesus is frustrated with them because their priorities are wrong. They go to the city. They go to the city for food. Why would you go to a man-made construction, the edifice of human tyranny and human might and human strength, which is how cities function in Scripture? Why would you go there for food when you could just sit and receive the gift of Jesus' instruction? The only way is if you misunderstand what this food is. And the fact is the disciples have this conversation with Jesus. The disciples besought him, saying, Rabbi, eat. After they came back from the city. Right. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So this is a parallel to what he was saying to the Samaritan woman. The disciples don't say, ooh, Jesus, I want some of this food. The disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him food? She was already willing to listen to Jesus before she knew who he was. She was listening to him the way a child listens when someone makes sense to them and they want to hear what they have to say. She was childlike in that regard. She was so open to instruction. Not only was she open to the teaching, but the teaching was rough. Jesus is not pussyfoot around no, the Samaritan woman. <laughs> and the first thing is, I have living water. Really, tell me about this. Oh, yeah, you're a prostitute. You're unfaithful. Okay, that's kind of a tough teaching if you're going to teach right off the bat. This is how Jesus does it. And she's not offended. She's amazed. And she goes, tell people, this guy knows stuff. She doesn't say, can you believe what this guy said to me? No. Can you believe, where does this guy get off talking like that? Right. She doesn't say that. But the disciples say, I guess he ate already. And, you know, that's all they have to say. And then G Jesus interrupts them because obviously they're not going to ask the question, oh, he already ate. Let's move on. Jesus is not ready to move on. So he interrupts their thinking about their bellies and says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? I tell you, lift up your eyes and see how the fields are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Providence is his food. Earlier I said that he's sitting by the well of the Torah, and he's giving the life-giving instruction. And here he says it plainly, and still no one understands. He says plainly, my food is to do the will of God the Father. When I do what God's instruction requires of me, then I am fed. And the food that I eat will sustain me unto life. And not only does it sustain you to life, it then can sustain others. Because once you have devoured this food, it's not something that now goes into your belly and then is sent out as waste. But it's something that then can be given to the next person. And we see that in the very next lines. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So the teaching that Jesus gave the Samaritan woman, he offered to her the source of eternal life, which as a proper source then trickles down into a stream. And all the other Samaritans then drink from this. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. The disciples are ready to get back on the highway and go. Let's get out of here. Right. But the Samaritans said, please stay. Please stay. And they hadn't even met him yet. 
on the testimony of this woman who is faithful in her listening, faithful in stopping what she was doing, faithful in giving up her own ego, hearing the hard teaching, and then being ready to pass that on to the next people. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of your words that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So they believed because they heard the woman, but then they were open to hearing what he had to say. It was on the testimony of the one who heard Jesus, they were brought to Jesus in order to drink from this well. That's the job of the disciples. The disciples are supposed to be the ones, the apostles are supposed to be the ones who hear Jesus' teaching directly, go out and then teach it to others. So, again, I want to come back to this point. When they came back as ones whose priority should be the teaching, they were not interested in what Jesus was saying to the woman. They wanted to know who she was. Again, they're focusing on her category, her identity. Why was he talking to a woman? They look so ridiculous. First, they're interested in their stomach, and they have no clue what Jesus is saying. Then they don't care about his teaching. And now they add insult to injury by inquiring about the identity of the true disciple instead of humbling themselves and realizing that she chose the better portion. They were not open to the critique here that, hey, disciples, Jewish disciples, the Samaritan woman was a better listener, a better learner, and a better disciple than you. After the two days, he departed to Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, and we continue on with the rest of the story. But they didn't know who he was in Galilee. That's his hometown. He went into the enemy town in Samaria, and they not only accepted him, they begged him to stay with them. So in Galilee, eh, he stays, he goes. You know, they're happy about the wine and everything. That's always nice. But in Samaria, they were happy with the water that he gave because the water was a teaching. The water gave them eternal life. The water brought them together. The water gave them the ability to have eternal life because they could turn away from the flesh and the things that are of the flesh of the normal quotidian life and were able to understand the teaching that Jesus brought, which was the harsh critique and the challenge to follow the will of God to the end. I mean, there's another dimension here with the water. You reminded me while you were talking. In the ancient Near East, as communities made the transition from being tribal, nomadic communities that revolved around a patriarchal system, when they made the transition from that patriarchal tribal system to the city-king paradigm, They went from being able to wander around to different sources of water in the wilderness to being locked into a source of water, right? Cities were built by rivers and so on. And then once you were there, you were under the domain of the king and you marveled, as it were, at the infrastructure that he built. And that infrastructure became your reference for your own safety and security. So it's no small thing that they went to the city for sustenance, but she was in the wilderness of the Samaritans, and God was able to provide life in that wilderness. Right. It's the prophets again. 
you can't read the Gospel of John. You know, people talk, well, the type of Greek it uses. And so, I mean, no, you can't read it as a philosophical text. You have to read it against its context within the biblical tradition, which, again, is the Old Testament, the prophets, the writings, and so forth. Well, and I just need to say it one more time because I think that we can't say it enough. The naive willingness to receive the water is a willingness to receive the critique. This is what is essential. You have to be ready for the critique that Jesus brings. The disciples were not ready. They just wanted to eat their dinner. And the critique always comes from the outside. Jesus comes from the outside. Paul comes from the outside. You know, he's alienated from the church as a persecutor of the church. The prophets, whether they come from within Judea or from without, they're always against Jerusalem in their rhetoric. In good times and bad, you can always count on the prophet to face Jerusalem with the difficult news that God is coming as their enemy through a foreign army. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. We worship here. You worship in Jerusalem. If you're really a prophet, I need you to make a call here. Which is the correct place to worship? She sounds like someone who is coming to a community and saying, okay, what are the rules? Tell me, because... At this church, they do this, and at that church, they do that. So again, there's this tension of fundamentalism that's actually in the narrative. Right. We Just know, tell me the right way to do it. We know that we're different from them because we're here. Are they correct, or are we correct? This is the worst question for the fundamentalist, because the fundamentalist wants to assume that they're correct. But at least she's opening herself to saying, which is correct? Yeah. But then what does Jesus say? Of course, he undermines the question completely. Woman. Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You're both wrong. Let's start with that. You worship what you do not know. We worship for we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming. And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such the Father seeks to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will show us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So she's waiting for Messiah. That's why she's ready to hear what he has to say. But again, it's a critique. Which is right, them or us? Let me start with this. Neither. Right. And when he says salvation is from the Jews, that's so difficult to hear correctly in English. Because then the assumption of the addressee is that, oh, that means that the Jews have the true faith. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that, according to Scripture, the anointed one, the Messiah, God's king, God's representative on earth, is a son of David. Now, we know that this terminology in all of the Gospels is very tricky. Is he a son of David or isn't he a son of David? He has to be entitled... But yet, he's not from David's seed. So, this is what he's talking about. Because in the next verse, he announces that he's the Messiah. That's the key point. And even more than that, he says, Okay, Messiah comes from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. However, I'm not taking a side. There's going to be a moment where the true worshipers are going to be identified and those who are not the true worshipers are going to be identified. So, yes, salvation is from the Jews. However, 
it hasn't actually been sorted out who the real Jews are. The true Jews are the ones who worship in spirit and in truth, not just the ones who come from this geographical area or who go to Jerusalem to do their sacrificing. It's those who worship in spirit and in truth. So again, you're both wrong. This Messiah is from the Jews. This is correct. But the question is, who's the Jews? And we saw this when we... And the Messiah and John will hear his father's instruction which is what he's doing at the well. He's hearing and teaching. He'll hear his father's instruction, and his father's instruction will separate the wheat from the chaff. In Zechariah and Malachi, we have this discussion of what is the eschatological Judea going to look like? What's the eschatological Israel going to look like? As a matter of fact, it includes a lot of Gentiles, as we saw in those books. So yes, the Jews are going to be the source of salvation, but who the Jews are has to be determined. And how do we know who the Jews are? We saw it when we looked at the Book of the Twelve. It's the community in which everyone lives according to Torah. So in John, Jesus is using the sin in this story of the Samaritan woman and using her station that she's a woman, using all of these things that put her in a position of lower esteem in the eyes of the disciples. He's taking that and putting it in place as a stumbling block to exegete the minor prophets and the example you gave so that they would finally hear what the minor prophets are saying about the Messiah and about evangelism and about the responsibility to go out and show for the sake of those who have ears to hear. So if only we can hear, if only we can learn with the naive willingness to hear what's being taught as nasty as mean, as upsetting as a teaching may be, we have to be ready to hear it. We cannot say we're serious about Scripture. We cannot say we're serious about Christianity. We cannot say we're serious about being a follower of Jesus or any of this language until we're ready to hear the difficult judgment that it holds against us. Not bad, we did it. That was Somali, friends. God bless you. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.